grab a Bible, turn to the book of Genesis. Uh, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 4 this morning. Yeah, so we're in a sermon series uh, right now. Uh, we're taking a break briefly from the book of Acts, which we were in, uh, going through it verse by verse. We'll return to that soon. But for the month of February, we're taking a break, and we're looking at a sermon series titled Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. And we're considering topics such as life, gender, sexuality, from a biblical, from a Christian perspective, all right? Uh, one way of thinking about it is each week, and you have received on your way in a sermon note insert to take notes, to fill in the blanks and all that, so you've got that. Um, on, the, on the back side of it, you have a calendar, if you will, where we're tracking through each week of this series. Because each week we are exposing the dehumanizing view of the body in secular thinking. And we are offering the truth and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ and a biblical, a Christian worldview. All right? So today we're looking at the title or the subject of abortion. The title of the message is Treasured from conception, treasured from conception. There's a simple outline this morning, okay? Very simple. It's two points, two big points. Roman numeral one, culture. Culture says abortion is okay. Roman numeral two, the Bible. The Bible says it's never okay. <laughs> That's it? That's the outline, like seriously. But there's grace. That's what we're going to look at this morning, and you know, I just want to kind of introduce things first. Here's some questions that we're asking this morning. You know, and I don't know if we'll be able to get to all of this, but just, just I want to put these in your mind. How can we as Christians get more engaged in this issue on, you know, the other side of the big decision to overturn Roe v. Wade? How? What does it look like? Is there, here's a question, is there an actual contradiction when the secular world says that they want to follow the science and save lives, but then they also say that they agree scientifically that an unborn baby is a life, but they're okay with the medical procedure to extinguish that life? But like, I'm asking, is that an actual contradiction? Because we sometimes would say, oh, it is, and it's so blatant, but, but is it? What is the worldview behind that? Here's another one. Is it anti-woman to be pro-life? Do we really have to choose between these two causes? Here's a real one for us. This one is uh, coming down your street, knocking on the door inside the house. What do we as Christians do about a friend who is a professing follower of Jesus and seemingly very thoughtful as a person, yet is pro-choice. So, okay, these are like some questions. I got a lot. There's just set the table. All right, let's dive in. Let me say this first. When we're talking about abortion, terminology-wise, what, what I mean I am referring to the willful killing of an unborn human life. 
Okay? We're not talking about an unintentional miscarriage. We're not talking about at times when a hospital might medically label a miscarriage as an abortion. None of that. We're talking about willful killing of an unborn human life. Some statistics just to give us perspective, all right? Since 1973, when there was a court case that has been known and called Roe versus Wade, legalizing abortion, since that time, 63 million abortions have been performed in the United States. That is, if you were to today kill every person in Florida, North Carolina, and Texas. That's how big that number is. 1.2 million per year, 3,500 per day. So, you know, when you think about 1.2 million per year, think about that number. Because 1.1 million is the number of deaths in the U.S. from COVID. That's COVID every year since 1973. In North Carolina in 2020, there were 32,000 abortions. That's 17 per day during your waking hours. That's about one per hour. So there will be one for each service today. Think about that. 32,000 abortions in 2020 in North Carolina. It's the same number right now as the death toll of the victims of the earthquake in Syria and Turkey. In America, 19, or I'm sorry, in America, 92% of Down syndrome babies are aborted. So we're just getting perspective as we consider statistics. Abortion is a billion dollar per year business. And it's going online now on the other side of the Roe v. Wade ruling with telehealth and ordering the abortion pill online from overseas. It's not a minority-owned business. I say that because I challenge you to open up Google Maps and search out Planned Parenthoods and abortion clinics and see where they pop up and see if they pop up in wealthy suburban areas. They don't. Since 1973, 30% of the African-American population wiped out by abortion. So, one pastor, Dr. Tony Evans, says abortion is the greatest moral crisis of our generation. Yet far too many churches have remained silent. R.C. Sproul says you cannot overreact to this problem. This is the most significant, most serious, most dreadful reality in my judgment in the history of the world. We're going to read Genesis 4 in just a second. And lots of Bible passages after that. But I just share with you a bunch of statistics and numbers, and here's something that I'm aware of and mindful of, is that sometimes statistics and numbers can be just statistics and numbers. In fact, I was thinking about that this week, because 
my wife and I, we had a chance this past year to go to Turkey. And so what's happening right now with the earthquake in Turkey is, I guess you could say a little close, feels closer. Feels closer for us. But honestly, just being real, I've had a really, really busy week. And I have mainly only had time, I don't know about you, sometimes I'm more free and I'll dive more into things, but this week I've only had time to keep up with the death toll number. That, that's it. Just kind of checking in, what's the death toll number? I, it kind of reminded me of COVID a little bit, just constantly checking. What's the number today? Anyways, my wife was telling me yesterday in the car as we were driving somewhere, that one of the many articles that she had read was talking about people trapped in collapsed buildings and the voices could be heard and no one could get to them and how it was very upsetting. And I'm like, I literally, as she was telling the story, felt myself want her to stop telling me the story. Because I haven't gone there yet with it. I'm good with the statistics and numbers. I'm good with it just being in my mind. I don't really want to get it all in my feelings and heart yet. It's like, I think, a self-protective measure at times. And so statistics and numbers can be that way. And even as I was thinking about these voices being heard, I was thinking about how that really is the challenge with abortion. We don't hear the voice. And yet Proverbs 31 verse 8 tells us as God's people that we are to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. So let me read to you now Genesis 4, 1 through 10, and then I want to pray for our time looking at the Word this morning. Let's read this passage. Genesis 4 verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must overrule it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Bow with me. God, we thank you this morning for setting before us such an important subject. Not for us to just sit here and share our opinions, but God, may you 
clearly show us in your word what we as followers of Jesus are to think, how we are to speak, and how we are to feel with compassion about these matters. Oh God, would you just energize this time together, Lord, as seeds are sown, would it fall on good soil? And Lord, would you grow us and would we be a church that is a voice for the voiceless? First, we need to hear your voice. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Treasured from conception. Okay. So anytime you talk about abortion, there's a lot of objections. And believe me, I feel it. I don't necessarily feel it from you. I just feel it all by itself. I feel it. I'm very sympathetic to it. You know, what about rape and incest? What about women's health and care of those facing or having gone through an abortion? What about adoption? What about foster care? What about systemic issues in our culture that have made people have to want to get an abortion because of their own situation? What about these things? What about women who will seek to get an abortion anyways through a very unhealthful and unsterile way or online through ordering pills if it's not legal and safe and wonderful? That's how we talk about it, right? What about this? Oh, man, what about pro-life politicians who do not care about anything but using this issue to get votes from a constituency? What about mean-spirited pro-life protesters who shout and shame pregnant women? Oh, man. What about confusing and legal health care and verbiage where in some hospitals they actually call miscarriages abortion and if we, if we label abortion as illegal, then hospitals can't do their job. What about all the other very real forms of injustice that this sermon can't possibly speak about? What about those? Hey, those things matter too. All of those. We're just talking about abortion this morning. It should be said, and this is important, that people, most people that I know, people who are pro-choice and thoughtful, they don't want babies to die. Rather, they're often deeply compassionate and thoughtful people that are concerned about many of the issues that I just listed. They are pressing issues that we just talked about. And it's all part of being in a fallen and broken world. But let me say this, and this is key. Listen, the absolute most critical thing, the key to answering these questions for a Christian, if you're a Christian, the key is to first answer the question from the Bible regarding when human life begins with the image of God in the eyes of God. Once that becomes clear, if it becomes clear to you as it should become clear to you, if not already, then from today's sermon, that life endowed with dignity through the image of God begins at conception, then all of the above listed, just mentioned a second ago, objections and problems. You know what happens to all of those? Here's what happens. Nothing. They're still there, and they're still hard. But you and I as Christians, with a biblically formed conviction for life in the womb, treasured from conception, now we must work through those difficulties 
without the world's shortcut of abortion. But here's the thing. Full personhood at conception is the battleground. Let me continue. We're going to look at the first point now. Culture. Where abortion is okay because the unborn are not fully persons. Again, what we're doing in this sermon series each week is trying to expose the dehumanizing lie of our world and offer forward the good and hopeful truth of a biblical worldview of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in our culture, abortion is okay because the unborn are not fully persons yet. Here's the thing, though. Understand this first. We're going to sort of think about this for a moment and kind of build this up. So life begins at conception. And what we need to understand is that that is accepted science by everyone. Like it's not even a debate anymore. If we are thinking that is the unborn child living, like that, that's like, Hello, like go back to the 1980s and have that debate. It's over. Like no one is saying that. Even secular scientists, no one is saying that. I'll read this to you from Human Embryology and Teratology. It says, although life is a continuous process, fertilization is a critical landmark because under ordinary circumstances, a new genetically distinct human organism is thereby formed point is that the entire human being develops in seamless continuum from the point of conception. Let me just break that down to you real simple, the way I think about things. So life is a continuous process. So I turned 42 this past year. And I do not tell people I'm 42 and I came from a 41-year-old. No, I don't say that. And I shouldn't, right? Like, I shouldn't. That'd be weird. Right. I say, I'm 42, and I was 41. Because life is a continuous process. And where does that continuous process begin? All science, universally accepted, believes that that process begins at conception. Mary Williams, in her article online at salon.com, says this, and I read it to you. And this is tragic, but this is the worldview of culture. She says, so what if abortion ends life? I believe life starts at conception. And it's never stopped me from being pro-choice. Here's the complicated reality. This is always what happens. People say it's so complicated. That's why I made my outline so dumb and simple today. Here's the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not equal. That's a difficult thing for liberals like me to talk about lest we wind up looking like death panel loving kill your grandma and your precious baby stormtroopers. Yet a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as a woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her. Always. Look at the way our culture describes what they admit to be human life, yet labeled as a non-autonomous entity that has less rights than another human. 
How do people do this? Like, how do they rationalize this? Like, what gets you there? What's the worldview? It's not enough for us to just get upset and say, that's crazy. That's crazy talk. That's not enough. We have to engage the worldview. The key to understanding this is personhood theory. Personhood theory is the hidden premise in these arguments for abortion. I'll give you an example. So when John Kerry, Senator John Kerry, when he ran for president, he stated that he, was, he believed life started at conception. And Peter Jennings asked him, well, then how can you be pro-choice? And he said, and I quote, the pre-born baby is not the form of life that takes personhood in the terms that we have judged it to be. So do you see? There's the body and the person. There's, there's you know, what people all agree is a living human body. Then the person resides somewhere outside of that or somewhere beyond that. And it's often difficult to get people to nail down for you exactly when that transition happens, but that's the thinking. I was talking with a person here at our church, and they're not here in this service, so don't feel uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was talking with them about these issues, and and they had a real problem with my view. They had a real problem with being pro-life. And they were thoughtful about it. And so I wanted to listen to them and hear them. And Basically, their understanding was that there, there is a time in the life of an unborn child, that nine months, there is a time when they, that unborn child is imbued. You hear that fancy word? This is what always happens. Get, things get really fancy. Imbued with a soul. And from the point at which the unborn child is imbued with a soul, of course it's wrong to abort. But we don't really know when that is. And this person, they thought it's probably around the second trimester. But their point was the Bible doesn't actually tell us exactly the moment when the soul is imbued by God on the human being. And follow this. because And, and they're right, it doesn't say that. And because the Bible doesn't speak super definitively and clearly about when the soul is imbued on the human being, then their thought process was, we're guessing. And it seems unfair to inflict so much potential harm, take away so much autonomy and rights to their body from women, if all we're doing is guessing about the timing of the soul being imbued. So, we continue to discuss it in the basement of our church. Here's the thing. This teaching that the soul mysteriously comes to the unborn baby at some point after conception, they're right. The Bible doesn't speak to that. It's nowhere in the Bible. It's completely not biblical. Thinking that way in some way permits Christians to be sort of for abortion in some cases, that's a lie. That type of thinking is from Plato. It's from Aristotle. 
is from Descartes, who says, I think, therefore I am. The real person resides outside of the body. It's from Islam. It's ultimately, listen, it's from Satan, who is the father of lies and who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Full personhood at conception is the battleground. The dehumanizing lie of our culture is that unborn babies have bodies. Oh, yeah, they're alive. We'll give you that. But they're not yet full persons that we are obligated to love and value and defend. Now, to the Bible for truth. So, the Bible says abortion is really never okay but there is grace, but it's never okay. Because, and first let's look here at the Old Testament, and here it is. The unborn are created from conception in the image and likeness of God. In the image and likeness of God. Genesis 1, verse 26 says, then God said, let us make man in our image. Hang on to these words, image. After our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over everything creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God made man in his image and likeness. That's what the Bible teaches. And that is what Christians believe is the key from which we derive dignity and value. More on that in a second. Image, likeness. Keep thinking about these words. Genesis 5, verse 1 through 3. Again, talking more about creation. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Watch this. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own, same Hebrew word, likeness, after his image and named him Seth. What do we learn from this? It's not complicated. God created man in his image in likeness. And everyone born to Adam and Eve, all the ancestors from Adam and Eve, receive the image and likeness of God through their parents by procreation. It begins at conception. That's what the Bible teaches. It's not about a soul being magically imbued at some point, which we don't know when, in the first or second or third trimester. No, no, no. It's that we're made in the image of likeness of God and that we are given that through procreation and by our parents, and that's biblical. So Genesis 9 verse 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Say, why? What makes man so valuable? Why, Moses? He's like, okay. For God made man in his own image. That's why. Value, dignity, derived from the image of God 
given through procreation at the point of conception. That's the battleground. Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. Psalm 51, verse 5. Look at this verse. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Why would the Bible call a three-week since, let's just say three weeks since conception, non-imbued with a soul embryo, sinful? Can a clump of cells have moral status? No. Life begins at conception. Personhood starts with conception. The image and likeness of God is endowed to us from our parents at the point of conception. That's the point. So Christians, we believe because the Bible teaches that human dignity comes from being made in the image and likeness of our Creator from conception, treasured from conception. That's the title this morning. Our worth, your worth, your value does not come from your contributions to society, from your capacity, from your capabilities, from your job title, from your IQ, from your net worth, from your 40-yard dash time, from your vertical leap, from your GPA, from your grades in school. It comes from being made in God's image. You are valuable. You matter. This has been true of you ever since conception. We're made in the image of God. Psalm 139 says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. In, in the past, like, 50 years, we have these things called ultrasound. And, like, really recently, they've gotten, like, really good. So detailed. God's like, welcome to the party. I've been seeing the unformed baby ever since I started it. That's what David's saying here. Culture, it's okay. The Bible, oh, it's, it's never okay. Old Testament, the unborn are created from conception in the image and likeness of God. Now, New Testament. Here you go. When Jesus came from heaven to earth to be the Savior of people, He came from conception. When the angel came to Mary, the mother of Jesus, in Luke 1, and I want to read that to you, it says, Behold, you will, watch for it, the key word, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, 
And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is the Christmas story. But the Christmas story did not start in the manger. It started at conception. So then Mary, just a couple of verses later, we read about her going to her aunt's house, whose name was Elizabeth, who was also pregnant with John the Baptist, but she was six months ahead of Mary. We read in Luke 1, the account. In those days, so again, in those days, literally right after Mary became miraculously pregnant with Jesus right after that. Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Here's the thing. Let me me say this. This is important right here. You can hear a lot of sermons where someone will just read this passage and say, look at that, John the Baptist leaping in the womb, pro-life, let's case closed. And maybe that's okay, but here's the thing. A lot of people, many professing Christians will even say, oh yeah, totally, great passage. And that's exactly what I believe. And that probably was for sure after the soul was imbued on John the Baptist. Yeah, I'm not for abortion. I'm not for like that. And that's why we have to really get into the details and point out, no, 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 hold up. Mary was like a couple weeks pregnant. And John the Baptist, unborn as he was, was able to fully acknowledge the full personhood of Jesus Christ in the first month of pregnancy. Even so, Elizabeth refers to the first trimester unborn baby inside of Mary as, what does she say? My Lord. This is the view of Scripture. When Jesus came from heaven to earth to be the Savior of his people, he came from conception. And the Bible teaches that that's the key point where there is full personhood as recognized in the Old and New Testament. As Christians, we sing songs, and one that we sing is, Jesus paid it all. Think about it. In the gospel, Jesus became fully man to fully identify with us, those who he is saving, and to fully represent every part of us at the cross. In his mission to do this, he did not come as an adult. He did not come 
as a toddler, as a newborn baby. He didn't come in the second trimester. He came as a zygote. It's really not from the cradle to the cross. It's from conception to the cross. Hebrews 2.17 says it this way, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Do you see it? In every respect. Philippians 2, he was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made or being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's what I'm saying. Like, there's like no way that we can be followers of Christ and really understand the gospel of Jesus Christ from conception to the cross and not get that life endowed with dignity and value from the Creator begins at conception and not be for life, for being a voice for the voiceless and for protecting life in the womb. Treasured from conception. Culture, it's okay. Bible, the Old Testament, it's not okay. New Testament, yeah, it's not okay. But there's grace. So now with just some application to close. And the first thing I would just encourage you with and challenge you about is to speak up. To speak up. It's only helpful when we speak up clearly. Sometimes we nuance things being so concerned about stepping on toes that we say nothing. You've heard the Word of God. You've heard His voice. I trust that in some measure this morning, you've heard from the voiceless. Now let's be the voice. Speak up. Another thing is to speak the truth. Speak truth. When culture says fetus, say person. When someone says, just a miscarriage, say, no, death of a child. When culture says, reproductive rights, say, murder. When culture, and when even some professing believers mistakenly say, unborn babies have bodies, and yeah, they're alive and I care about them, but they're not yet full persons, or they don't yet have an imbued soul, say, no. I'm going to be a voice for the voiceless right here and now. From conception, unborn babies are made in the image and likeness of God for us to love and protect. That's what the Bible teaches. So this is the good and hopeful truth of Christianity against the dehumanizing lie of the world in regards to life. Speak up, speak truth. And now speak with actions. Speak with actions. Mark 12, 31 says, Love your neighbor as yourself. Actions means love. I mean, I just think it's so clear. We, we either have to be invested in this cause in some way. We either have to be involved, hands-on, like rolling up our sleeves, being involved. 
We have to be fervently praying for those impacted and affected in every possible way by this. Or the other option would be to disobey. Like, I really think it's that clear in Scripture, which makes our action step clear too. We can give, go, pray, or disobey. Lastly, speak grace. Speak grace. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. So have you done some wrong things? We all have. Maybe even abortion. Good thing the Bible never teaches that we are saved by our works. We're saved despite our works. We're saved by the work of Christ in our place and on the cross. By grace you have been saved. And so on this issue, we will speak grace. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We ought not to be condemning those that Christ does not condemn. And for those who are outside of Christ and in their own sins, we ought to be offering them not condemnation, but the gospel which enables them to be not condemned. And I'll share this last verse with you in closing. We started with Genesis 4 and Cain and Abel and Cain saying, I'm not my brother's keeper. It's not my problem. And God saying, well, his blood is crying out to me from the ground. Hebrews 12 picks up on that from the Old Testament, sort of brings it into the New Testament and says, you have come. Mount Zion, the city of the living God, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel.